Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. What if you could be authentic and open with your outside investors? What if you felt safe to share more information with them? What if you could be both hard-headed, as in numbers and results-focused, and soft-hearted, as in curious and vulnerable? These are some of the questions that I explore in this inspiring conversation with Lisa Mickelson. Lisa is the global head of human capital at Flourish Ventures, which is an $850 million fintech fund with a purpose to build a fairer financial system around the globe. In her role as global head of human capital, Lisa works with founders and their teams to optimize their business performance in areas like HR, recruiting, performance management, culture, and communication. If you want to learn about the inner workings of venture capital firms, or even how to change the power dynamics with your investors, you're really going to enjoy this episode with Lisa Mickelson. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Great. Well, Lisa Mickelson, thanks so much for being here. Great to see you on the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Alex, thanks for having me. Now, you have this really interesting role. Uh, You're the global head of human capital for Flourish Ventures, which is not a title that a lot of us have heard before. Uh, Tell us what that means. How how do you work in your role? And what does a global head of human capital do for a venture firm? Yeah, Alex, it's a great question. And I think 10 years ago, no one had any idea what I was doing, but um, this is a, a type of role that has sort of evolved over the years in, in the venture capital world uh, where VC firms wanted to have value add to their portfolio companies. So they started bringing in primarily talent people to do recruitment for their portfolio companies. And that was, that was how things started for me. Um, but as I got into that work and started working with our portfolio, it was really clear that there were some other needs that were starting to um, pop up that were beyond recruitment, especially as companies weren't hiring. Um, So a lot of my background, which is HR, has come into play sort of helping our portfolio companies think through um, everything related to growth, people challenges, organizational development, design, And that was really kind of the basis for my role. Uh, That said, it has evolved in recent years, Alex, to where I consider myself more of a um, kind of a founder well-being advocate. Uh, And my role is starting to morph into one that's um, providing support, not just on a one-on-one basis for portfolio companies, but more broadly for the overall portfolio and thinking through what kinds of activities we can provide, uh, programs, services, offerings that are helping our founders to show up at their very best. And that's a big deal because 
as we talked about at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in 2023, where you were on a panel with Matt McCall from Forge Capital and Tim Chang from Mayfield Fund, you know, we know that founder well-being is a big deal these days. There's a statistic out there that something like 72% of founders report negative mental health or mental health problems once they start a company. And I'm sure that as a, uh, a VC firm, as an investor, you want to make sure that the people in whom you're investing are showing up as their best selves, that they have all the resources that they need. So I can really see how that uh, is an important driver of success within, uh, you know, within your portfolio, within the companies that Flourish Ventures will back. How have you seen that evolve? I mean, your role has changed over the last 10 years, but certainly the conversation about founder well-being, founder mental health, resilience has also changed a lot too. Oh, definitely, Alex. I'm thrilled that it's starting to pop up as more of a regular conversation, that it's starting to be normalized as a topic that uh, folks are more comfortable talking about. Um, there's still a lot of taboo. You know, I think entrepreneurs are always under tremendous stress, stress from their jobs, stress from their funders, family, uh, you know, you have to worry about your employees. There's always a lot going on in the life of an it's entrepreneur. It's a long list. It's a long list. It's, yes. a, it's a very <laughs> long list. Yes. You, you know this very well. Um, and, you know, I think we're starting to realize more and more that when it comes to performance, optimal performance, we need to be our best. Um, you know, we show up and do the best things when we're in the best space, when we're in the best mental space, when we're in good physical shape. Uh, so there's certainly a performance element to it that I think any investment firm is going to get behind. I think maybe what's a little different about us um, is we are oftentimes investing in entrepreneurs who are tackling really challenging um, financial uh, challenges within the world. Um, fintech globally. Um, and, you know, they're up against some significant barriers. These are long-term investments. And we want to have a long-term relationship with our portfolio companies. And by being there, by listening, by providing support, these are ways we can certainly um, encourage them and empower them to show up as their best. And uh, this is important, especially like you're referencing in the the fintech space, because big, big projects, hyper complicated, lots of moving parts. Who knows what the future is going to look like? I always think of Flourish Ventures, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the company as sort of doing fintech with heart, if you will. Meaning, uh, I know that obviously we are trying to make money, we're trying to build profitable companies, but you really have a mission driven um, purpose to what you're doing. And, and and I think that really comes across in terms of the portfolio and the types of founders that you back. But share a little bit more about the mission and vision of this really interesting company. Thank you so much for saying that. Yes, we like to think of ourselves as hard-headed, soft-hearted, um, really, you know, looking at advancements in fintech that are improving financial lives for Americans, Americans, um, enhancing financial health, 
globally. Um, we, we back entrepreneurs who are innovative in their efforts to solve these, you know, great financial challenges. And we are looking at not just commercial returns, but also social returns and, and how, you know, what sort of the impact on the markets that they're serving. Uh, also Flourish is a little bit different, I think, in that we, um, so we're solely focused on, on fintech. So we do have pretty deep expertise in various sub areas of fintech. We're also a global investment firm. So not only the U.S. are we doing investments, but a lot, a lot in the global South. So Latin America, India, uh, Africa. So we bring that global perspective where frankly, you know, innovations are just happening so rapidly in other places in the world. So being able to bring that information together. And then finally, I think the, um, emphasis we place on building the ecosystem at large. So thinking about policy work, advocacy work, you know, fintech is difficult because you're dealing with large incumbents and lots of regulation. It's the most heavily regulated industry you could possibly invest in. So um, it's important to keep a pulse on that and, um, you know, be doing everything we can to um, to support positive movement. And the company itself, as far as I'm aware, is backed by Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay. I believe this is sort of the the one of the, his claims to fame. Uh, and you have a single investor, is that correct? And quite a large fund. I, I think you're about $850 million under management, if I got my numbers right. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, Pierre has... Um, you know, definitely been um, supporting incredible initiatives all over the world. Um, Flourish is one that spun out of the Omidyar network about five years ago. Um, and yeah, we're strictly focused on fintech. Um, and he is our sole LP. So we do have um, a real benefit there and, and an evergreen fund. Now, is your sense, Lisa, that because we have a mission focus because we have this uh, hard-headed, soft-hearted approach to things, uh, and we're trying to make an impact in these complicated fintech environments, do you attract a certain set sort of set or type of entrepreneur? What is what does an entrepreneur who reaches out to Flourish or wants to work with Flourish uh, look like? Yeah, you know, Alex, if you had asked me that question a year ago, I'm not sure I would have thought there was that much of a difference. Um, but honestly, the more and more I get our entrepreneurs together for different events, we do CEO retreats, we've had co-founder retreats. The message that keeps coming back from all of them is, wow, the people that you've brought together in this portfolio are amazing. Very humble, impressive people. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's not always a word that you hear humble <laughs> coming right. from uh, entrepreneurs. And it's, um, it, it's just an honor. I think that, um, that we've been able to bring these types of leaders together. And I do think that they are attracted to uh, probably the, the values alignment that we have as a firm. Also um, having a, a patient capital model where um you know, we don't expect that these organizations are going to uh, 
you know, do everything they want to achieve in two years. <laughs> These are long-term plays. So we're aligned there. We're aligned on our longer term goals. We're aligned on values. Um, and I, I think that's part of what's kind of bringing this great group together. And so you mentioned uh, doing CEO retreats or co-founder retreats. And, and you mentioned a little bit earlier that you've done everything from coaching to sort of broader discussions on on topics of mental uh, health or, or founder well-being. Um, Break down for me what those all look like. It's, I, it sounds like it's quite a lot of uh, things that you do there from micro interactions to things at a much larger scale, all in advance of these important topics. So how does yeah. how does that break down? What, what have you found to be most effective? Yeah, I mean, at the highest level, you know, we for our entire portfolio, we're trying to normalize vulnerable conversations. Um, trying to be good listeners. We're trying to share resources. Um, so kind of taking some of the, the taboo out of topics um, that might not uh, be comfortable for entrepreneurs with their funders. Um, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, of course, you, you need to show that you're strong and things are going well and you have a plan and, <laughs> and all of these things. But, um, you know, it's okay to be real. And, and we want to make sure that at the highest level, that's, that's what we're striving towards. But in terms of programming, um, we definitely have uh, a lot of different offerings that have evolved over the years. The CEO retreat is something that we started several years ago. And we decided very consciously to make that an opportunity for our leaders to do inner work. So these are not, um, you know, business gatherings where we're talking about product market fit or sales cycles. We're talking about you as a founder. We're talking about you as an individual, as a human. Um, and the kind of content that we have in programming is around things like resilience training or mental health informed coaching. Um, we do mindfulness exercises. Um, we really want to make that an opportunity to reinforce the importance of taking care of oneself as a leader. Um, we also hold other kinds of events like um, founder circles where founders can get together monthly with their peers and do these sort of um, coaching sessions where they're talking about wherever they want to go. Um, they can mm -hmm. talk about personal, they can talk about business um, because it can't be lonely and that loneliness needs an outlet. So having other people to talk to who understand your unique position is super important. Um, we also offer coaching to our portfolio companies. I know a lot of um, a lot of VCs are doing that now as well. Um, but we don't stop there. It's not just about our founders and and portfolio. It's also about our team and making sure that our team is in a place to um, handle conflict well, to ask empowering questions as board members. Uh, so we we take this on ourselves too as a responsibility of um, of the funder, and then just also more broadly um, in the industry, we we want to be advocating for founder well being. We want to be changing the narrative, um, contributing with speaking engagements, writing about this, um, you know, supporting research, anything we can to elevate the the entire ecosystem because. It's great if we're doing this work for founders and, and 
ensuring that they have outlets for for building their well-being. But it's also important that everyone else is doing that too. Yeah, it's, I was going to ask that as a follow-up question, what the team does internally. So, of course, a ton of resources are going on to the founders. And, and, and I know the value because I've been a part of uh, CEO circles and I've uh, you know had coaching and many of these types of things. And obviously, we run the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Uh, but I've never seen or been exposed to the inner workings within uh, an investor. So, you know, the the that dynamic must be really interesting to say, hey, we're not only advocating this as champions of founder well-being, we also, as investors and board members uh, and advisors, need to make sure that we're walking the walk uh, as well. So what does that Absolutely. actually look like? Are you sending your investors to you know, boot camps and doing coaching for them? And are they doing their own inner work? Actually, yes. Um, so most of the things that we um, encourage our CEOs to do, we also do ourselves. So um, our team has gone through a resilience training. Um, we've spent time with the mental health research and understanding um, what, uh, what the landscape looks like. Um, my team uh, will be going through empathy training soon. Um, I'm always on the lookout for ways for professional development internally, but I also have to hand it to the team. I, our team loves this stuff. I think they find it really helpful. You know, when you become an investor, a lot of times you've uh, your career has been in investment banking, or maybe you've been an operator. But chances are you haven't had a lot of um, exposure to some of these topics, um, especially the research and some of this inner work. So we definitely encourage that. We have uh, wellness benefits for our team. We encourage time off. And a big part of that starts at the top. And I think that's going to go for just about any venture capital firm. You know, you're managing partners. They are the ones that are leading the way and that are leading by example. And if they're not taking time off, or if they're not practicing mindfulness, or mm -hmm. if they're not kind of demonstrating how we handle ourselves in these difficult situations, then the rest of the team, they don't have that to follow. So I think that's um, a really key part too, in addition to just kind of, you know, everybody doing a little bit of everything. Uh, you really need to set your own internal culture in a way that's very values driven and um, aligned with how how you all want to show up. It sounds like what you're doing is changing the conversation a bit uh, because it's in this, in this startup world, especially VC funded startup world, we really glamorize burnout and, you know, this idea of like, Oh, I'm just going to put my head down and keep working and I'm going to sacrifice everything. And I'm going to, you know, be maniacally focused on my goals and so on. And, and, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, that winds up being a problem in the long term, right? We either we either burn out uh, mentally or burn out physically, or you know, relationships get destroyed. Yeah. Lots of stuff happens, and at the same time, our, our society looks at this and says, "Well, that's the archetype of a successful entrepreneur." You know, someone who's just out there burning the candle on both ends and and you know, putting a dent in the universe, as they as they say, um, and. The, the shift that you're talking about is something that's happening in, in real time. So people are realizing, hey, I can't live like this. I can't, if I don't put my 
put gas in my tank, I can't be great when I show up, for example. And at the same time, they're also realizing, hey, I'm a multifaceted human being. There's multiple parts of my life. I can't only work all the time and expect to be a successful human on top of all this stuff. So you're really part of having that conversation or changing the way that we're thinking about this glamorization of burnout. How's the reception been within the rest of the VC world, within the rest of the VC community? Yeah, Alex, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, And I think just one other point to touch on maybe is the fact that historically, you know, funds would look at a small percentage of their portfolio that's outperforming and then a lot of write-offs. And that's exactly aligned with, you know, the sort of burnout mechanics, right? You have a couple that are just going to fly no matter what, right? And then you have so many more that are just um, burnt out and and just churning through. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's there's a world where we can think through a new paradigm where it's somewhere where we're all thriving and have the ability to take things to um, take things to a successful outcome over a long period of time. So it's more that notion of running the marathon. Um, and of course there's going to be ups and downs and you still need tremendous drive and you still are going to be working crazy hours. It's not like any, anyone who's, um, you know, invoking a, a life of well-being is just going to, you know, be slacking off. I think it's it's important too to make that distinction of, um, you know, these cycles where we're sprinting, and then we also need to recover from that in order to do it again. So rest is something that's absolutely critical, so that we can be continuing to push forward, be creative. Um, be in a good space, um, take care of ourselves, take care of others. So how your question, how is the VC community reacting to this? Um, well, I think in the communities that I'm in, we're a little bit, it's, it's a bit of that preaching to the choir, right? So I, I hear positive things, but I also realize that I'm talking to people who are excited about this too. So there's plenty Uh more (laughs) that I'm not talking to about it. Um, I would like to, I would like to open up that conversation. I would, I would welcome pushback from investors or, or other folks who, don't think this is okay or think that this is too soft. Um, I'd love to learn what their perspectives are and their points of view might be. Um, I think there, this movement is gaining traction. I know that, um, you know, the, the folks with the founder mental health pledge, for instance, they've signed a lot of top name VCs to committing, um, to taking care of their founders this way and, and showing up in a different way. Um, I, I think what you're doing with the conscious entrepreneur, you know, there's these little pockets, these little bubbles um, of, of communities that are starting to rise up. Um, and I think we need to pull together and, and see what we can do as a larger community. Yeah, because that's the question is, you know, are we, re- are we reaching a tipping point in this conversation or not? Because it's one thing if there's just going to be kind of, you know, the fringe elements talking about this. But all the all the big money and power is being directed into the traditional hus- hustle culture, or are we actually at a point where people are 
coming around to this broader type of conversation. And I certainly get the impression that there's more than just lip service being paid on the part of many investors in VCs, because I know, you know, many myself, um, I just don't know how big a swath of the market they actually represent. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And the fact that the market is changing so fast right now um, and, you know, funds that we would have looked at a couple of years ago, um, aren't, we're not looking at them anymore. So I well, think yeah, that, quite. Um, and even on that, on that point, when things are good, everybody can talk about this stuff. Everyone feels like they they yeah. have the the time and the resources and the energy to talk about it. When things are you know difficult, like they are in twenty twenty three, then suddenly the conversation might change to be a lot more uh, focused on numbers and outcomes. Is the impression I get? Yeah, I think that's right. And also, when things are good and money is plentiful, then investors have to do whatever it takes to. Um, get, get the deal. Right. So, um, when this becomes a competitive, um, activity, then of course we're putting out all the bells and whistles to try to attract founders. So I think this is the time when it's true. It's, you have to see who is, who's going to take care of you in tough times. Those are the people you want on your side. Um, and I, my dream is for founders, for entrepreneurs to always feel that they have choice, um, that they have choice in who they take money from, um, as those will be long-term partners, a long-term relationship and not to be discouraged. Even if you've heard no a thousand times and you finally hear yes, to still be very, um, discerning about who you're saying yes to as well. That is a, uh, I know an area of particular interest to you. I've, I've heard you talk about this actually at the, at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Uh, you were talking about the power dynamics between investors and founders. And this is, this is a big deal. So, I, so let's, I'd love to get your insights on, on how this conversation has evolved and what your, your personal specific experience has been. Um, you said when you were on stage, this is back in June of 2023, you said, quote, there's an inverse relationship between empathy and power. And you were talking specifically about uh, investor dynamics with entrepreneurs and how that plays out. Because this is a, this is a very uh, salient topic for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs tend to be the ones in sales mode when we are chasing money. Uh, we tend to be viewed as one down in the relationship. So the investor is one up, we're one down. So there's some kind of a dynamic or mismatch there. Uh, we tend to feel a lot of personal pressure when engaging with VCs or, or looking for money. Uh, as you said yourself, we tend to hear no a lot. Uh, so there's obviously this dynamic is at play. Um, what did you mean when you said there's an inverse relationship between empathy and power? Yeah, I think power dynamics are such a fascinating topic. Um, I am no expert in this area, but I love talking to people who are experts in this area. <laughs> so I, I did. I think you um, may have seen I had a conversation with Jamil Zaki not too long ago on empathy, um, and he's one who has talked to me a lot about this, um, this inverse relationship. So, um, 
what happens oftentimes is that people who are very empathetic, who are uh, good listeners, who can connect with others, oftentimes those people can rise into positions of power. Um, many times because of of that characteristic. Because um, they have the soft skills that people appreciate right. as your career matures. Right, right. Uh, but mm -hmm. the ironic thing is that the research shows this. I think um, it's been some research to come out of Berkeley. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the per professor who um, did this study. But um, it turns out once we're in positions of power, we are less able to empathize with those around us who are not in the same position. And it's very tragic because, you know, those are the people that those in power need to understand. So whether you're, you're a politician or a VC um, or even, you know, CEOs, think about your, yeah. um, you know, your employees or your customers. Um, it's, it's not um, natural for us to understand what everyone else is going through when we're at a different position. Um, we can't simply step into somebody's shoes. It, it takes real work to be at a place of understanding and empathy um, and to be able to relate. Um, so I think that's where the work comes in. It's, it's not just a, a given. And so that changes over time. So it sounds like you were saying that people get promoted or they advance in their career because they have empathy and high EQ. And then once they get into positions of power that evolves or that changes and they, I mean, they don't, obviously don't lose that skill, but is it different priorities that take over? You know, what happens there that causes that shift or causes, causes that, to, uh, that empathy to be more blunted? Yeah, I well, again, I'm not the researcher behind this, yeah. so I don't have the expertise. But um, from what I hear, there's a few different things that happens. Um, and one of the things that happens is there can sometimes be this um, maybe unconscious view that, you know, I paid my dues. Now it's time for you to pay your dues. Um, this is as Jamil used the great example of residents um, who are in, you know, going through med school and they work these crazy hours and the the supervisors are not any easier on them, even though they went through it themselves. Um, so that's one thing. I think another thing is, um, and I, I wouldn't say that EQ necessarily goes down, but empathy specifically goes down. Um, because it's just simply harder to relate um, to a position that someone else might be in. Um, again, it's not impossible. It just takes work to do. So it's something that we have to be aware of. We have to be conscious of. I mean, at Flourish, one of our values is humility. And it's probably not a value you see very often in venture capital firms. Um, but we really do believe that humility allows you to ask, you know, it, it sort of opens you up to asking questions, to learning, to investigating, to trying to understand. Um, and that is how you build empathy. That's how you can relate to others is by spending the time, by taking the time um, and not being in that, um, you know, kind of advisory mode all the time, but also in learner mode and listener mode.
we sort of default to that advisor mode because uh, people, I mean, I, you know, people come to you with questions and they want to know about this and they want to do that. And advisor mode is both a way for me to kind of show off or declare my expertise and my, you know, all the experience that I have. Uh, and at the same way, it can be a way for me to sort of brush off a conversation, you know, not just kind of answer a question and, and presumably get on to the next thing and just say, oh, hey, do it this way. And, and that'll, with the hope that's going to close the door or, or shorten the conversation. Uh, so I can certainly see why a lot of DCs and, and frankly, a lot of CEOs also get into that mode and forget about the listening, the inquiring yeah. that you're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, there's expediency in being directive, right? Just do this or just, you know, change this or, oh, if you only do that, um, as opposed to facilitating dialogue and, well, what have you seen? What do you think? I mean, that's, I think the best investors who are out there, they have the experience and they can draw on that experience, but they also understand that the founder or the CEO has been in the weeds, you know, 24 seven for the last X number of months or years. They're really experts. So how can you ask them the right questions so that they can unlock the answers? Or how can you share your experience in a way that's not kind of pushing somebody to, to do things one way or another? And I think sometimes, you know, speed just gets in the way of, um, effectiveness sometimes. Now, Lisa, when you look at uh, your role in, in uh, human capital, when you look at all the companies that you've worked with in the Flourish portfolio, what stands out as the characteristics of the most successful teams and CEOs? Like, you know, you've, you've been doing this long enough. I'm sure you've got a great sense of like, hey, this one's you know, going to work out because of X, Y, Z, or you're seeing some other dynamics that are causing concern. What are those, you know, both positive and negative, like warning signs, if you will? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of what I think, um, sort of ends up, uh, unleashing, I guess, the most successful entrepreneurs we have in our portfolio is, is curiosity. Um, I see a, a great, you know, intellectual curiosity. They're always asking questions. They're tapping into as many different people as they can. They are, you know, asking the questions and then sort of synthesizing and coming up with their own responses. Um, they're leveraging all the resources that they have, um, the people around them, the uh, investor community around them. Uh, they're also people who have a growth mindset. Um, I, I think anyone who dwells on failure too long or, or doesn't maybe appreciate that they're just doing the best they can at any given time, uh, you know, you're up for a, a lot of setbacks um, in starting a company. So having somebody who um, really believes in the learning process um, and takes mistakes or um, setbacks and internalizes them and and really is thoughtful about what to do differently. Um, and also people who are doing the inner work. You know, I've, I've said this before and, and I'll say it again. You, we can't 
if we're not the best versions of ourselves, how can we show up the best in situations to our employees? And all of that trickles down throughout the company. And so somebody who is understanding what their strengths are, what they need to improve, how to rest, how to um, recover from things, um, you know, what is it that they need? Somebody who understands their own needs, who can be self-aware and acting on that awareness. Those are some of the things that I see that I, I admire and uh, always comes back around to success. And do you screen for any of that during the, during the process? I mean, do you have a way to say how internally uh, motivated is this person? Uh, how much of a growth mindset do they have? How self-aware are they? Does that go into any of your pre-investing decisions or is this just once we roll up our sleeves and we're working in a different capacity with a company? We definitely take time to evaluate individuals as part of the investment process. Um, that's that's something that's really important because we don't see ourselves. I think like most investors, we're not just supporting an idea, we're supporting a person or people. Um, and so to understand who those people are, uh, warts and all, um, you know, what are the risks? And it's not to say somebody who doesn't have, who doesn't check all the boxes or have all the green flags isn't going to be the right fit. It just means that everybody has, you know, we all have our own things that we need to work on and we're much stronger and more effective if we know what we need to work on and we can stay, take steps towards working on those things. So it's, it's more about just understanding who is the person. Yeah, no, that make makes sense. This is it's about like removing blind spots, if you will. So absolutely, uh, there's going to be stuff that comes up, and and a big part of awareness is: do I see what's happening? Can I accept what's happening? And then do I want to make a decision or commitment to change it? That's right. And most of the entrepreneurs that we back are pioneers in their field. They're doing things that have not been done before. So. Of course, there are going to be things that you don't know. Um, so how, you know, it's it's important for us to to know that we have somebody as a long term partner who is able to look themselves in the mirror with a with a pretty good with a pretty solid perspective on what's showing up. What do CEOs or uh, founding teams call you for? When they, they pick up the phone, they're like, I need to talk to Lisa. I, I've got a problem with X. <laughs> what are the problems that they're coming to you with? And uh, what have you seen sort of trends in terms of maybe it's based on different phases of the company? You know, certain things are always happening at certain times or there's certain themes around X, Y, Z. But like, what makes them reach out to you and what are their requests when they do? Yeah, yeah. Um, good question. Um, I will say one thing. It's pretty much geo agnostic. So this is like globally, it's so the you get same to do calls at all times up. of uh, day, including <laughs> nighttime. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the themes are very similar, no matter where you are, uh, but they are tied to uh, stage of company. And we're, we tend to be um, earlier stage. Um, so I see a lot of the same stuff. But then we have some outliers who are really early stage and later stage, and and those um, you know have kind of their own um, their own distinct needs. But 
some of the common themes are around culture uh, and just general questions around culture. Like, do we want to have this kind of culture or we're seeing this happening? How can we change this? Or how do we keep our culture when we grow? Um, so lots of questions around culture and spoiler alert, most of it comes back to values and operationalizing those values. So we talk a lot about um, mission, vision, and values and how those will set you up for goals. Um, I really believe that anything in, in people operations or related to HR needs to tie back to the business. So um, a lot of requests around how we think about, okay, given what we need to achieve, given our goals in the next 12 months, 18 months, what do we need to do to get there? Um, so it can be culture, it can be performance related, it can be recruiting related, it can be compensation, um, can be relationship related, organizational design. It's all kinds of stuff. It's all over the place. And is there one topic area or theme that you wished they asked more about, you know, are you like, Hey, how come you aren't asking this important question? And, and it's like, kind of like a big gap for people. Hmm. A few years ago, I would have said yes. Um, a few years ago, I always thought that recruiting was kind of the Trojan horse to getting into, um, deeper discussions about culture and leadership. Uh, but now I, I think you know, leaders are really switched on and savvy around people issues. I think there's um, less kind of um, need to convince anyone that your people are your greatest assets. I think I think folks know that now. Um, so I'm really pleased with the kinds of questions they do ask. Um, maybe one thing that is I would encourage more founders to be open about is when things aren't going well. And maybe you need to make some difficult decisions or have some difficult conversations, whether that be pivot, layoff, um, you name it, um, any kind of honest conversation with your team. Give me more lead time. Tell me in advance and let's talk about it because I think that's an area where we can all use help and we can all use advice and, you know, perspective from others who have done that before many, many times and what has worked and what has backfired. Um, it's not a failure to ask those kinds of questions because every business goes through that at one point or another. The question is, will you go through it well? Will you do it well? And practice is the only way to, to, um, to do that. So they could practice with you. They could call up and say, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's how I'm scripting yeah. it out. Here's how I imagine the conversation going and you're sounding and reflecting on that with them. Absolutely. Tell me what you need your message as if I'm an employee in your company and I'll tell you how I feel, tell you how that, what that makes me worried about, what I'm concerned about, what I'm excited about, what I feel good about. Because we, you know, the, the CEOs think about it, you, you've been following the story for a long time. So when you deliver news, in your mind, it's been talked about for months, weeks. To the employee, it's the first time they're hearing it. So we all sometimes need help understanding how to take people along on the journey. And you have to do that in a very compressed amount of time. So getting feedback is, is critical. 
I have certainly suffered from that one. Uh, the idea that, wait, how come everyone isn't reading my mind? Don't you all know all this? I've known this for you know days or months or weeks or whatever. Some really long period of time. Why is this new to everyone? Why are you, re- why are you reacting with shock and surprise? Yeah, right. guilty. <laughs> right. Guilty. Even good news. Shouldn't they be excited about this? Why aren't people excited about this? Well, here's why. Because the human brain works in mysterious ways. And we all have different reactions to information. So, mm. um now, how about uh, one of the super uh, big issues that companies face that can be a killer of your company is co-founder conflict. So everything is great when you start and you know, then certain period of time in, whatever it is, it's either different vision or different working styles or different life requirements or lots of things that come up. Um, do you get called in to, to uh, negotiate through that? Or do, you, do you get called in to deal with co-founder conflict? Do you have specific examples of things that work well or don't work well when tensions are rising? I'm so glad that more people are talking about this now, by the way. I think um, this used to be everyone's dirty little secret and no one was comfortable talking about it. Now it's just so out there in the open. There are coaches, there are programs that specialize in co-founder dynamics. It's certainly talked about more and more. And I don't personally go in, but I bring in the experts. Um, I bring in experts in this who can work through that. Um, But I think more importantly, and probably what resonates um, with most, because not all experience, you know, these really challenging conflicts, but sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding about, you know, what's my role, what's your role, or what are we doing here? Um, so what we are encouraging is a, a sort of co-founder retreat or co-founder communication um, early on in your relationship. So you can really solidify trust, understand each other's values, goals, hopes, dreams, um, and create a cadence for regular conversations about the co-founder relationship. So it doesn't get to the point of having this massive conflict that you know, requires specialists to come in and get involved with. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of conversations that just aren't being had and not because people don't want to have them, but it's because, you know, everyone's so focused on the business and performance and outcomes that we don't always stop and take the time to reflect and say, whoa, we've been going really fast for the last six months. How are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing? How is my role changing? What am I still excited about? So it's simple stuff. It's not rocket science, but um, we're testing this out with our portfolio companies to see if there's kind of a framework that they can revisit um, frequently in their co-founder pods or in their leadership pods so that they're just raising questions often enough so that it just becomes a regular practice. The same as you would have, you know, performance management conversations or feedback conversations. You want to build it into your culture so it's not only for when things go horribly wrong. Yeah, incredibly important to keep the momentum on that, to be comfortable in having these kind of conversations, be comfortable in asking these questions. And the more often you do it, the better you are. It becomes a, uh, an early warning system as opposed to, oh, we're about to hit the ground and everybody freaks out and it turns into a big issue. So the earlier we have these conversations, the easier they are. Definitely. Um, one concept that comes up a lot that I, I have to admit I need more definition on or I need to understand how it applies more in this kind of 
context of, of venture backed companies and even potentially within the power dynamics is psychological safety. How does that apply here? Well, like, what's a, what's a good working definition of psychological safety? How might I apply that within a team? And or is that something I apply with my relationship with my investors? How does that work? Yeah, so my kind of quick definition of psychological safety is, does someone feel comfortable speaking up? Does someone feel comfortable having a view and expressing that view that's different from others in the room, including the person or people in power? Are you comfortable sharing your feelings about things? Feelings not, you know, your deepest, darkest (laughs) secrets, but feelings like, I feel uncomfortable about launching this product tomorrow, whatever it is. That psychological safety is when you feel safe to be open and honest about what you're experiencing with the people around you. Um, And that's a key ingredient to any successful team or relationship. So I need it in all in all areas of of life and work. So I need it with my team. I need it with the co-founders. I need it with my investors. I need it at home with my spouse. I would say yes. I think it's it's the basis for trusting relationships, um, and it's something that can be fostered. It should generally be fostered by the person who is in the position of power. Um, that can be done by expressing vulnerability, sharing your own feelings about things, sharing your own concerns. Um, and it's also important that the, the person who is not in the position of power, um, you know, gives, gives a chance too. gives it a chance. So it's, okay. it's something uh, that we all need to, to work on. So you said the person who's not in power gives it a chance, meaning is also open to this conversation is open to the reciprocal nature of that relationship. Definitely. Cool. Great. That's a good, that's a really helpful tool. And you know, it's one of these things that comes out, comes up a lot in the, in the term. And I, and I know that everyone has their own definitions of it. And uh, a lot of people are not sure exactly what it means and am I there yet, et cetera. So thank you for, thank you for clarifying. Um, Lisa, maybe just one other point to add on that. Um, Yeah, please. Some of the, some of the research, um, I think it was Startup Snapshot, came out that said only 10% of founders feel comfortable sharing difficult or stressful or negative issues with their funders. Only 10%. That's a very small number. So I'm thinking about that like, wow. I don't want to be the funder that is in the dark. That's not getting this information. Um, You know, we talk about power dynamics, but in some sense, the entrepreneur has the power because they have the power of information, what's going on. And their willingness to share that really depends on the relationship that they've built with the funder, that they're not going to be judged, that they're not going to be thrown out, that they're, you know, that all of these bad things aren't going to happen that we've been programmed to think are going to happen when we share um, unfortunate news. So having psychological safety is so important to improving that relationship, improving that dynamic. And important for all parties, 
So this yes. is not a top-down thing. This is not a one-way street. This is critical for everyone based on certainly that statistic you just shared. It is. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, as as we wrap up here, I've got some questions I'd love to to go over with you. The first being something that uh, came up when you were with us at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit and you had the chance to spend two days with us in, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, reflecting on that now, Lisa, what would you say is your definition of a conscious entrepreneur? <laughs> yeah, it's an evolving definition. I think um, it's a person with purpose. I think it's somebody who is very purpose-driven, whatever that purpose may be. Um, I believe it's someone who does their own inner work. Um, I also believe that it's someone who is empowering of others. So a conscious entrepreneur is going to um, do good things for themselves and the world around them um, and empower others to do the same and sort of have that, that ripple effect. Um, and many of the things that I mentioned, frankly, earlier about what makes a great entrepreneur, what do we invest in? You know, it's somebody who has a growth mindset. It's somebody who's always learning. It's somebody who, um, is precise in their use of language, knowing that it can impact other people. It's somebody who listens well. So it's, it's really just the kind of person that you always want to be around. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Um, we mentioned a bit of, you know, some of the things that you look for in others. Do they have a uh, growth mindset? Do they do their inner work? What are their characteristics and qualities? I want to flip that around on you now and say, what are your practices? So what do you do on a, on a daily basis? What do you do on a weekly basis to maintain your resilience, your health, your well-being? Uh, and what, so what practices do you share? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think it's, you know, we all have to have our practices. My, I, I think probably my number one daily practice that is absolutely non-negotiable is a good night's sleep. I know that might sound very basic, but in a world where, you know, you have people cheering each other on for sleeping only four hours or even less, um, I'm an eight hour plus person. Um, and I will not miss my sleep for so pretty much anything. So do you have anything. like blackout curtains and a certain temperature and certain I've time? And like... I've got the ring, the aura ring that tracks my sleep. <laughs> I really mm -hmm. get into sleep. I think it's, I think it's a superpower. I think it unlocks a lot more than what we realize. Um, so sleep is one nature, spending time in nature is another one. Um, I try to do every day. Um, I try to find green space. Um, even when I'm traveling, I'm traveling quite often. So just being, finding a park, finding a place where I can connect with, um, any kind of nature is really powerful for me. Um, I'm also a big journaler. I have a, a practice of journaling. Um, I find that to be really therapeutic, really healing. Um, and then I guess lastly, just self-compassion because the reality is sometimes life gets in the way and we can't always do all the things that we want to do, even for our own well-being. So um, not being too hard on myself when I'm not doing the run that I had planned to do or what have you. Um, so self-compassion is another one that I'm 
exploring. Yeah, it's, it's important to cut yourself a break. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and what about in terms of the resources that you like to share? So thinking back at the books you recommend, the video links you send around, the, uh, you know, the, the, the resources that kind of really light your fire that you go out there and, and share with people, what are the ones that are most impactful, especially as it relates to conscious entrepreneurs? Um, I think you, you need a whole nother podcast for that because I am a big reader. Um, okay. I have a massive bookshelf with just about every kind of book. Um, so narrowing it down is really hard. I have to think mostly with a recency bias. So what am I reading right now or what am I paying attention to right now? Um, I, I find, uh, stoicism practices quite interesting. So I just finished reading, uh, Stillness is the key. I think it was called by Ryan Holiday. Um, love that, and it is very like digestible bits of wisdom that are really helpful um, to draw on on a daily basis. So I love that. Um, Susan David's work. Susan David's work around emotional agility. So if you haven't read her book, Emotional Agility, or watched any of her TED talks. Um, mm-hmm. That's really good stuff too. I think this is, you know, the language of emotions is something that we must tap into more um, to be effective leaders, effective communicators, and better humans. So I love that. Um, I know this sounds a little strange. I am a parent of two kids. Um, my kids are a little bit older, so they're not really the reason why I read uh, the work of Dr. Becky, but if for parents of small kids, I'm sure they've heard of Dr. Becky. She wrote a book called Good Inside, um, which I think is the most phenomenal parenting book I've ever read. And I've read a lot of parenting books. Um, and there's something to me about the parallels between parenting and leadership that are super valuable in understanding just how we validate each other, how we empower each other, um, coming from a place of true caring. Uh, so I find that really helpful also. Great. Fantastic. I, I feel, I feel a blog post coming on the Flourish Ventures website <laughs> of Lisa's resources for entrepreneurs. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love doing book shares. Well, super. Uh, Lisa Mickelson, thanks so much for joining us. And, and I want to say thank you to you. And I want to say thank you to the broader umbrella at Flourish Ventures for everything that you're doing to change the conversation around founder well-being and mental health and to make sure that we are asking the right questions. And, you know, what I see in you and what I, what I take away from this conversation is real leadership on this topic. And that is so needed right now. So thank you so much for being here on the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. And thanks so much for your support of the broader community. Alex, thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do. In addition to all of the other work you do, I don't know how you pull it all off. You're amazing, amazingly talented. Um, And then just a a shout out to any VCs who are watching or listening who want to be a part of this movement. Um, Call me. Let's let's connect because it's going to take a village. We need to build this village. Awesome. Super. Thanks so much, Lisa. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. 
I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.